Hello, welcome to Psychopath in Your Life. This is episode number 137, and I'm your host, Diane Emerson. Today, I'm going to do a couple quick updates. Um, Today, I'm going to be talking about the UN, as in the United Nations, and kind of give you a spin around the world to show you um, how complex this situation with children is. And also, I'd like to warn you that um, down in the links below, I do have a lot of links there that I am not going to be covering in the show because I don't feel like, you know, my role is to read things to you. So um, there's some very interesting links that I put there. And I do, um, just as an alert, I do scan them before I post them to make sure that there's nothing horrendous there. So um, if you do find anything there, just please let me know. But what I do is when I'm doing research is I have this signal to myself that goes out of there, meaning that... um, if it starts to go too intense, it's better just to get out of there. So I'm trying to be conscious of any links that I post for you down there that don't have any kind of overly graphic details. So anyhow, so um, yeah, if you want to take advantage of those links, because there's a lot of things that you can add to the conversation here, because um, in one update, as far as children, um, we have the children in the cages here. And um, what's happening now is they're secretly adopting them out to families. So, yeah, that's something else. So when I say that there's a war on children, I'm really not even saying that kind of lightly. So today we're going to be talking about um, there's a lot on the front end of this deal, meaning that um, – I've been tending to kind of orbit around the 45, 1950s time frame and going back with research as far as how did this all happen with the exploitation and whatnot with children and who's responsible and how far does it go around the world. So um, there is a front-end story or back-end story, how we want to look at it to all this, and it starts way before the wars, um, and it has to do with the banking dynasties and whatnot. So I'm not going to go there right now because right now today I'd like to tell you a little bit more about we're making kind of a mistake with children when we A, eliminate women from the picture and B, when we start to think that because of the Epstein case that it only involves the elites. And that's not the case at all. It does along the food chain, of course, involve the elite still, what I'll be talking about today with the United Nations, but um, it's it's different than um, it's different than the Epstein case as far as how they were procuring the children, um, and it speaks a lot to our moral insanity that's going on right now. And you know, how, how much longer do people continue to look the other way? Because it's not a problem of just one country; it's a problem of the entire world. So, in order to explore this, we kind of need to broaden out our scope here a little bit and take a look at who's the bigger player in this and why haven't we heard more about them? So today let's dig into a little bit about the United Nations. And throughout history, it's been interesting because authoritarian figures have always tried to paint a perception of themselves in hopes of influencing and brainwashing the masses into a desired agenda. So let me give you a little bit of overview um, talk a little bit about the troops. Um, The United Nations has troops that they send out, and they basically are referred to as the blue helmets. They're called their peacekeepers. So just a little overview of these troops. They tend to be mainly in um, African-American countries, from what I can tell. I've looked through all their brochures and their literature and doing the research, and I don't know. It seems like that's where their, their focus is in third world countries. So um, they have troops in Haiti, Sudan, Central African Republic, and most recently, UN troops in Haiti and Sudan have been accused of sexual abuse of children. 
And this is a big problem with these NGOs, and I'll get into what an NGO is and how all this goes together. Um, and 2015, uh, 2015, a UN report interviewed over 200 Haitian women, a third of whom, whom were minors, who told they were forced to have sex with UN soldiers in exchange for material aid. That's what they do is that they um, get them because they're very needy and very poor. In Central African Republic, at least 98 girls said they had been sexually abused by international peacekeepers. UN, the UN identified 41 troops from Burundi and Gabon accused of sexual abuse and exploitation in Central Africa Republic in 2014 and 2015. The identified troops have now left the country, and I'll get into that why. There's an interesting report that I ran across because I'm trying to dig for relevant information that's happened more in the last few years so we can get a handle on how much of this UN rape is getting reported and how much is getting covered up and who's in charge of all of this. Okay. So there was a very interesting um, frontline show that I ran across on PBS and here again, the links will be down below. And there was a journalist named Ramin Navai and she reported and co-produced the film and she did it in the Dominican Republic of Congo, which is called the DRC. And they now have more alleged UN peacekeeper rape victims than any other country. So she did this great report for Frontline out of this area here. And luckily, it's just in the last few years. Um, she talks to, in part of her documentary, to lead you into this story and put some human faces behind it. In her documentary, she talks to a girl named, when she was 13, and her name is Annie. And Annie's parents, she lived in this village in this um, Congo. Her parents were both murdered by rebels, which happens when all these children end up being orphaned. Then the rebel gangs raped her, this young girl. And when government soldiers arrived in her village, they also raped her. Finally, UN peacekeepers showed up. Annie met one from South Africa who raped her and gave her a dollar. Annie, the lady asked, why did you think this soldier would be different? And she asked her, and he, she, she answered, he was white. Annie is one of 2,000 young women and children who were allegedly sexually exploited and abused by UN peacekeepers since the early 1990s. And the numbers are really, really hard to get track on. And I'll get into that a little bit here when you see the difficulty in reporting these cases. So we're just going right now off of some very vague assumptions as far as the numbers go, okay? Um, for, because for some reason, there's been a lot of um, reporting, a lot of um, we're going to do some investigations, a lot of we're going to get something done, and a lot of nothing gets done. So I'm going to go through the chain of command and who's now in charge and what the current status is on all this. So so in the last decade, to their credit, I guess that started in 1990, the 1990s, the UN has tried to curb the problem, <laughs> investigate allegations, increasing training stepping up oversight, and trying to educate the public on how to report sexual violence. But the problem cannot be fixed until there is a criminal accountability for the perpetrators, and the UN has zero control over that, because instead, the UN, if it's up to the UN member states to hold their own soldiers accountable. So anything that a soldier does in this Congo area, it's not up to them to punish them, it's up to the 
state that they came from. So see how convoluted this starts to become. So, so, so far they've done very little so far, which from what I can tell is next to nothing. But anyway, so, and then I ran across an interesting quote from a UN employer. She was a formerly a UN employee. And she said, I used to work for the UN. As my close friends will tell you, one of the reasons I left the UN is because I call them the second largest harbor of pedophiles behind only the Catholic Church. But maybe I am wrong. Maybe the UN is worse. How bad could this problem be? Have you wonder, ever wondered, she continues on here, this isn't me, this is her, have you ever wondered why countries like D Democratic Republic of Congo and Pakistan send so many peacekeeper soldiers? It is because, they're also referred to as the blue helmets here too, I'm going to be interchanging that a bit here. It is because the UN pays for these countries to send soldiers. So it's kind of like, almost like this own um developed army that goes around the world, okay? So it's a huge export center for the militaries and it's paid, paid for by net contributing countries like the UK, the US, and Australia. So our tax dollars at work here. So um, we're basically paying for these soldiers from these impoverished countries to go and um, rule over these other countries with no accountability. So she continues on, and if this is not a surprise or unknown, Google food for sex, those terms there, and UN sexual abuse. And just see how much comes up and how long it comes up. See for how long Kofi Annan, Ban Ki-moon, and now Antonio Guterres, I'll get to him in a minute, have been saying something must be done. Long time, really long time. So how did all this get started? Well, it got started because the, the UN has a history of immunity, which is kind of interesting because the same thing with a lot of diplomatic corps, like you can go into another country as a diplomat, and let's say if I hit and kill somebody's kid in that country, as a diplomat, I can escape any punishment and just go on home to my own country. Now, that's, that's kind of like the simpleton explanation. But the, so anyway, so the UN was set up on this process of immunity, which is kind of interesting. So here you've got no checks and balances, right? So at the end of World War II, which was when the UN conceived of it, um, when the UN was conceived of, peacekeepers, when well, they conceived of the peacekeepers, excuse me, it made them immune from prosecution by the host state, this is important, for any alleged crimes committed while on mission. This was considered necessary to stop others sabotaging their efforts to assist in post-conflict environments. Instead, they would be held accountable by their own government or judicial system. See the flaws starting to fly out here? Um, Odds of that happening are pretty, pretty low. So decades later, however, it became apparent that some peacekeepers were abusing that privileged position and to a great, great, great range of deal, to absolutely no reporting. So the United Nations is said to be an international, because I want to get into what are they, what do they say that they are? Because they are so big. I mean, they encompass UNICEF. I ran across so many names that I had heard from the past, like the International Money Fund. I, And I didn't have the time to dig into all of that because the International Money Fund, I remember them because they were the ones who paid off Ecuador who turned over um, Julian Assange to the, to the UK. So, <clears throat> but then I couldn't figure out who IMF was controlled by. I think it was by the um, UN. But anyway, it gets into some really intense amount of research at that point. But yeah, so um, 
they get into all of these areas. I mean, they do the reporting, they do the they send the soldiers out. I mean, they basically are kind of like the cat in the whole box here, okay? They're they're in charge of the troops, they're in charge of the activities of the troops, they're in charge of the report lack of reporting. Um so what they say they are on their website stuff is it said to be an international organization that aims to facilitate cooperation through social progress, economic development, international security, and international law. They promote themselves and are outwardly promoted as a reputable body that deals with peace, security, development, human rights, and humanitarian affairs. The UN at the forefront of all international conflict and instability, that's where they put themselves, since these exact events give them the ideal atmosphere to promote themselves as bringers of all. So because they go to all these conflict areas, they promote themselves of the arbitrary of peace and all of these things that they're bringing to the table. So decades later, however, it became apparent that peacekeepers were abusing this privileged position. Well, it's been apparent for a very long time. The issue is, is that no one's, no one's listening. So... Why do we have this? Um, what are the reasons? Because um, I wanted to look into why in the history of the UN, because remember, it was formed after World War II. So, you know, that's over close to 70 some years. So why have there not been any things in place? Well, first we heard about they said in place that there would be um, implied immunity for everybody. That's a pretty big red flag. And the other issue is because... Um, there's reasons for the UN's failure to adequately address abuse, and they've been rightfully blasted for their apparent unwillingness to take action and prevent instances of the sexual abuse and exploitation of both women and minors. A 1990, remember this is, we're trying to really dig around to these studies because until the Frontline show came up, there haven't been a lot of studies done because remember, the UN is responsible for the studies too, along with the punishments, so... There was a study by the impact of armed conflict on children, and it noted that in half the cases examined, the arrival of peacekeeping troops to war-torn areas was associated with a raised rise in child, pro child prostitution on those states. What happens is the, child, the children become the targets and the victims of the rape, and then they put them into a position to start collecting money, so they move them into the position of uh, prostitution. So, um, and that all leads back to that thinking with the Epstein case. So I'm just, this is why they're talking about the rise of prostitution because they first expose them to this and then they show them as a way to gain money. Because remember, these people control their entire village, their entire lives. So between them and the other NGOs, which I'll explain a little bit more about why the NGOs, um, the reporting is really bad because if you're if you're getting raped by somebody and you're a child and that somebody had power over your entire village for all of your needs, everything that everybody that you ever, ever know in your life needs, um, that's a lot of power to give a child. And so what happens is it puts a child in the position and then they flip them into being a prostitute. See how this all starts to work? So, yeah, so um, it's – they did it by the immunity and then they further did it by – well, they're, they're saying it was lack of training, but when you go along for 70 years or 80 years and you're doing the same thing over and over again, to me, that implies training, okay? That implies that these activities taking place 
were sort of an acknowledged part of the training, okay? So they can only be waived by the... Um, the only way that they can get this immunity waived is they can only be waived by the U- UN Secretary General, okay? And that's not going to ever happen either. So, and I have some news on the latest Attorney General there. So, so this, this is where it gets interesting, though, because before it can happen that they even start to investigate, investigators must be sent to establish that a crime did happen in the first place. So somebody's got to be sent from headquarters to establish that there was a crime. And with, you know, third world country conditions and stuff, I don't know, how do you establish if there was a crime? So, um, so what happens is that makes the UN the judge the jury, and the executioner in many of the reported cases of abuse. So you're really asking people, victims, to turn in their abusers to their abusers. So it creates this cycle of um, nothing's ever going to change. So this effectively results in an almost complete lack of convictions, such as in the case of the Haitian ring that was reported by the AP. That was kind of a big deal, but um, I think I might have a little bit more on that here. So... um, yeah, that was in the 90s, the Haitian deal, the sex rings working out of there. So the UN acknowledges that there have been hundreds of substantial cases of sexual exploitation by armed forces under its command just in recent years. Good they've acknowledged that, right? So there was a report of this place called The New American, and it said UN-backed troops in Somalia and the Congo came under fire over similar accusations last year. Some of the charges were not all but, and there are some charges that I came up here just to give you an overview of a snapshot for a couple of years of charges that have come up against these, the blue helmets or peacekeepers or UN troops. So the troops in Haiti, Sudan, and Central African Republic Most recently, UN troops in Haiti and Sudan have been accused of sexual abuse of children. In 2015, a UN report interviewed over 200 Haitian women, a third of whom were minors, who told them they were forced to have sex with UN soldiers in exchange for material aid. In Central African Republic, at least 98 girls said they had been sexually abused by international peacekeepers the UN blue helmets and the troops from Brunei, Gabon, and they had um, all been left the country. So, yeah, so they, um, I got that off of the conduct of the UN field marshal website. And it says, um, cause I wanted to find out, well, what are the regulations for um, if incidents happen in a country, does the UN have any regulations for what, what's supposed to happen? And according to their website, they have a, uh, these people have a, they're like the big, the UN spans out just over everywhere. So um, they ha- said it provides basic assistance to those who report being sexually exploited and abused by UN peacekeepers. That can include medical care, help assessing psychological c- counseling, finding shelter, clothing, food, and protection if they are at risk. Well, good luck on that when you live in a village in the Congo. Um, so anyway, so that support, that support though, according to their website, that support is supposed to happen, but it's supposed to come before the UN completes its investigation. So logistically, these things don't really add up because how could you get support if you have to acknowledge, you know, anyway, it gets kind of complicated. So um, it's really a no win for the victims. It's not like the victims in the Congo have cell phones and they're on, you know, the internet 24-7 tracking down caseworkers. So um, 
so what happens is is that the um, the victims. Let's, let's talk about what happens with these victims. What do they primarily suffer from? Well, it's a whole host of things, but it's primarily mental abuse, physical abuse. Um, the victims are too young for childbearing, yet they're having children. So it's high risk to the mother. Um, you know, when you're talking 12, 14-year-old children. And um, you know, in the links below, I have the age of consent map. I don't know if I mentioned that posted. So you can take a look at some of these countries and you can see how uh, troubling the age of consent is in a lot of them. So, um, you know, so this is a no-winner for the kids, okay? Because they, they, they end up with booms of babies happening in these areas where these children are all getting raped. There's more disease. There's even more poverty. And it's been going along for a long time. So then I started thinking about, well, okay, so they passed over all the past stuff and said, well, you know, we didn't pay much attention to that, but we're going to. So I thought, well, let's let's see what the new guy has to say, because that ex-employee was talking about the old people rushing it under. So let's take a new perspective as of this last year. What is the current UN thinking? So let's take a look at what he has to say. He said, let us declare in one voice, we will not tolerate anyone committing or condoning sexual exploitation and abuse. We will not let anyone cover up these crimes with the UN flag. Let us make zero tolerance a reality. That was the words of, those were the words, excuse me, Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez. Well, who is he? Um, his full name is Antonio Manuel de Oliveira Gutierrez. He has a bunch of titles, but anyway, um, he's a European. He's from Portugal. He was born in April of 1949, puts him at two years, three years older than me. He's a Portuguese politician, and he's a diplomat, and he's serving as a ninth secretary general of the United Nations. Previously, he was the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees between 2005 and 2015. So he had a good 10 years there before this latest position. But then it gets kind of interesting because Gutierrez was the Prime Minister of Portugal from 1995 to 2002 and was the Secretary General of the Socialist Party from 1992 to 2002. So, he was the prime minister of Portugal. I know a little bit about Portugal because um, during the Madeleine McCann case, because the crime had happened in Portugal, we did a lot of research into um, the age of consent in Portugal, what goes on in Portugal. Um, a lot of the research I decided not to use. And the reason was because um, the story was about Madeleine McCann. It wasn't about the age of consent and the crimes of Portugal. Um, so I narrowed the focus in. But um, this guy, um, it's interesting to bring up Portugal because if you look on that map and the links, Portugal has a very troubling age of consent. It's 14 years old. And yeah, there's a lot of hotbeds of along that area where the McCann incident happened or the, you know, murder happened. Um, there's um, a hotbed of pedophile activity. Um, it doesn't have to do, I decided to pull back on Portugal at the time because it didn't have to do really with the people themselves of Portugal. And because of that crime bringing so much focus, it caused enough damage. So it was to be addressed later. So it's interesting that this guy's name comes up because guess who was in charge of Portugal when the Portugal scandal happened? 
um, the Portugal scandal that I didn't talk about, but briefly before, was called Casa Pia. And I'll put some links in the box below. And Casa Pia was a huge scandal. And um, it was here again, modeled the same kind of care home things in the UK and whatnot, in that the children, Casa Pia is the chain of orphanages throughout Portugal. And in these orphanages, there was a tremendous amount of abuse going on. And what was happening was children were being taken out of the Portugal Portuguese um, um, not foster care. Um, what am I looking for? Um, you know what I'm looking for. Um, it's not foster care. We don't even have them anymore. Uh, institutions, but anyway, so yeah, it's just flown out of my mind all week. I've been doing all this research. So yeah. So, um, orphanages. Yeah. So anyway, so they had this huge, um, orphanage chain in Portugal called Casa Pia, and it was a site of a huge scandal and a big lawsuit and a big criminal case. And the essence was the same as in the care home cases in the UK. And if you want to look at before the UN case here, look at the work that I've done on the child line to see where these helping organizations come in to help as a guise of help, but really they're there to abuse. So like I always say, when they're Coming to prey, P-R-A-Y, they're usually looking for prey, P-R-E-Y. So yeah, so Casa Pia was pretty interesting. So this guy, who's now in charge of the UN now, was the prime minister for Portugal during this entire Casa Pia scandal. So um, yeah, so take a look at that. And um, and he was ranked as the uh, in Portugal as the best prime minister of the previous 30 years. So, okay. Um, yeah. And the age of consent in Portugal is still 14 years old. So um, that hasn't changed at all. So, um, so before I continue a little further in these countries, we start talking about NGOs and some people say NGOs, what are you talking about? Well, what are NGOs and what does it mean? And why do you mainly hear about NGOs in some of these third world countries? Um, there's cases made against the NGOs and some of the critics um, also insists that neoliberalitarian politics advanced by powerful international actors have limited the influence of the state and that NGOs have benefit, benefited as a result. So what happened was, was that these rich actors have gone into these countries and they've limited the influence, okay? And they've said that we're not going to be giving you money for services and stuff. You're going to be buying them through NGOs. So... Um, so the reason is because these neoliberal people, it's an approach that, that favors a smaller role for the state in the economic arena. So anyway, so the state has a small role and these contractors come in as NGOs as a bigger role. As a matter of fact, like the Doctors Without Borders, you've probably heard about them. They would be considered an NGO. There's actually NGOs who um, report on other NGOs. I mean, a lot of people can be NGOs. And so to be an NGO, you need to fill out paperwork and stuff to get grants and stuff from usually rich donors. Like, let's say the village needs water or something. So your NGO is going to come in and fix a water system for this village. So what you do is you fill out a grant and then they hire you to come in and bring in the contractors. So for a long time, I've been watching these NGOs because when I was doing the initial research into the pedophile rings, they were really had red flags all over them for me. So it was interesting to then, in the UN case, find the NGOs, and I need to do more research on it, they appear to report into the um, United Nations. So I, I don't know about that yet. So, but anyway, so NGOs really started 
um, because they wanted to get services in and they didn't want the government running the services. It's basic bottom line. So then you can go out and fundraise for your favorite little NGO. Like if you, you know, want to do the water thing to the village or whatever you want to do. So, yeah. So in between the NGOs and the UN peacekeepers, the blue helmets, you've got these two groups that have converged on these very underdeveloped poverty ridden countries and no controls, no checks, no measures. So, um, what happened was was that since the 1980s, to give you a little context as far as these NGOs, was that financial institutions like the World Bank and International Money Fund, we got to get back to them, do some more research on them. They have forced indebted African states to reduce public expenditure. So they're running these countries pretty much like you would a um, corporation. Um, and so they go in and they say, well, we're going to reduce all these expenditures because we don't want you spending all this money. So so this has encouraged the flourishing of non-state actors like NGOs. So they go in and say, we're going to give you some money, but when we give you through these friends of ours who are going to run these NGOs, it's basically how, how it happens. So, And it retains control in the hands of the NGOs versus the people. So um, while both local and international NGOs have benefited from this move, African states have been less able to access international aid. This undermines their sovereignty and places African people at the mercy of donors. Yeah, and I've got some, um, I'm not going to publish it today, but yeah, there's a lot of depleted uranium that goes on in African countries and some pretty brutal things that go on to um, raise money to finance for war that goes on in these countries. So um, we'll stay away from that for right, right now. Um, so NGOs are also criticized for their focus on technical solutions to poverty instead of the underlying issues. So, for an example, an NGO might provide water tanks for the poor without addressing the power imbalances that resulted in some having water while others don't. Yeah, and that happens in a lot of these third world countries, like companies like Nestle have gone into third world countries and they basically have bottled the existing water. So people had to buy it out of the bottles from these companies. So yeah, water is a really big issue when you're in a developing country. So another criticism is that NGOs are more accountable to their funders than those they serve, which is always a problem when you start running these charities as you would a corporation. So because they're largely dependent on funding, their projects are crafted in line with donor preferences instead of those they supposedly represent. A final criticism relates to the fact that NGO workers tend to be foreigners or local elites. Instead of empowering the local population to organize themselves, NGOs provide employment, and a sense of purpose for elites with degrees in subjects like development studies. So NGOs give the elites a platform to rule over the poverty-stricken countries, is basically the bottom line here. So just to see how prevalent this is around the country, around the world, because I've been talking today more about, you know, did a little bit about Portugal, a little about these African countries. But let's take a look at some of the more broader statistics as far as when it comes to children. Because I've already addressed how they become prostitutes. So let's talk about the top five countries with the highest rate of child prostitution. Be kind of surprised to hear some of these, right? Um, and this was as of 2014. Um, Sri Lanka. The number of crimes against children in Sri Lanka increased by 64% in 2012 over the previous year. So it is a very, very much of a quickly escalating issue. 
According to UNICEF and HLO, International Labor Organization, I don't know who owns it. I'm just going through who owns what here. I know UNICEF comes under UN, but I don't know who owns um no, not ILO, International Labor Organization. They say that there's 40,000 child prostitutes in Sri Lanka and 6.4% of the country's child population gets pregnant. Well, um, that's not necessarily true because of what I've been talking about before as far as the reporting because most of this stuff does not get reported. So if you figure that... I don't know, what do they say? It takes somebody until they're close to their 50s to start reporting um, abuse that happens to them. So imagine these are tiny children, and who are they going to talk to? So, um, yeah, so these numbers I'm telling you today are going to be way, 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 way underreported. I would guess, I mean, to the point that it would be hard for us to fathom it. Because remember, we're talking third world countries. We're talking no access to food, water, medical. Um, The people that control the access control the power meaning the people. So, yeah. So, um, and then we have Thailand. Thailand has, and these countries also then um, gather up a large um, sex trafficking industry to these countries because they start by raping them, then they turn them into prostitutes. And in Thailand, they have over 800,000 children under the age of 16. And this was in 2004 because facts are kind of hard to come up with. So, um, so many of them are just impossible to document. Brazil, this is an interesting one. Sex trafficking is an appalling truth to many young people in Brazil, where there are half a million children, children sex workers. See, they call them sex workers. That's so wrong. We got to come up with a better name than that. Um, children as young as 12 are selling themselves. Um, and I posted the links to a documentary that I watched called um, Brazil. It's called Brazil Children for Sale. And it's hundreds of children who live in the slums, leave their homes, to in search of tourists who are eager and easy and cheap bodies. They go there to earn money and escape poverty, but they end up in a cycle of abuse and all this other stuff. So um, according to Crimes Against Children Research Center, you know, all these research centers I kind of take with a grain of salt. I have to do a lot more research and validate with about a dozen more, but this is just it for now. The numbers of juvenile prostitutes within the United States. See, we get into, um, I'm sorry, I skipped over from the... um, We last left off at Brazil. Okay, we're at Brazil, and then we went to the United States. See, we're not all, these children are not always in um, third world countries um, because it's, when I say it's around the world, I mean it's truly around the world. So um, juvenile prostitutes with the United States range from 1,400 to 2.4 million here again, probably really low. And they said maybe fall between 300,000 and 600,000. I doubt that that's even close to being real. So, um, we definitely need better statistics and reports and some sort of reporting system. So prostituted children remain the orphans of America's justice system. They are either ignored or when they do come in contact with law enforcement, harassed, arrested, and incarcerated, while the adults who exploit them, the pimp and their customers, largely escape punishment. Yeah, we have, um, yeah, you know, this country in most developed countries, we don't need to get some attitude that we're some great, great places because the reality is, is that we're as uglier, uglier than the rest of them because at least they have ignorance on their side. And I don't know what our reasoning is. But anyway, so last on the list here, Canada. They have, um, and I'd like to 
I'll put a link down below to Kevin Annette's um, website. Kevin is the defrock priest who's up in Canada, and he's working with the um, children that have been stolen from families, Aborigines, I have a trouble pronouncing. Anyway, so I'll put a link to Kevin's site. So if you could please, um, you know, subscribe to Kevin's channel and follow what he's doing up in Canada. So um, Canada has a huge problem with babies and prostitution, and um, it's it's got a mammoth problem and when i first ran across kevin it was doing some other research and uh, at first they had him paint as being some nut conspiracy guy which he's not at all um and they he was talking about bones around facilities and i thought wait a minute i run into bones around facilities because there's bones at the isle of jersey and stuff so anyway so yeah check out kevin's um, youtube channel and give him whatever support you can especially if you're in the canada area so anyway so let me um, wrap up here a little bit okay with some closing thoughts is the united nations an illusion of a peacemaking body in order to drive chaos fear and to fulfill an agenda that started long before we were all born how can the UN protect us against mining corporations, for example, that commit atrocities all over the world when the same ones who created the UN own all the major mining corporations? So with that being said, I'll look forward to joining you in the comments. Be safe out there and talk to you next week. Goodbye for now.